Poetry on Air with Sheboygan Poet Laureate Lisa Vihos. Hi, I'm Lisa Vihos, and this is Poetry on Air, a program of Mead Public Library in Sheboygan, Wisconsin, in which we explore poetry and the meaning, inspiration, and healing it brings to our lives. My guest today is Janet Ross. Janet was born in 1924 in Evanston, Illinois. She was an only child who spent her time reading and drawing until her mother told her to go outside and play. She came to Sheboygan in the mid-1950s and raised her family here. For 40 years, Janet was a docent at the John Michael Kohler Art Center. She is a painter, a weaver, a poetry lover, and a dedicated peace activist who has carried many a sign and stood on many a corner. (laughs) She was also, for more than two decades, a partner in reading through the Sheboygan Area School District. And if I was going to have anyone read to me, it would be (laughs) Janet Ross. So welcome, Janet. Thank you. Thank you. (laughs) It's great to have you here. And you told me that, that you have a special appreciation for the poetry of Maxine Kuhlman. And that you brought some poems of hers to read today. And so. Well, uh, I think I discovered her at an age, especially this first one, Mm -hmm. when I was vegetable gardening and concerned about the world. Okay. And that's why. So the first one is called Mulching. Mm -hmm. Me in my bug proof netted headpiece, needing to spread sodden newspapers between broccolis, corn sprouts, cabbages, and four kinds of beans. Prostrate before old suicide bombings, starvation, AIDS, earthquakes, the unforeseen tsunami, front-page photographs of lines of people with everything they owned heaped on their heads, the rich assortment of birds trilling on all sides of my forest garden, the exhortations of commencement speakers at local colleges, the first torture revelations under my palms, and I a helpless citizen of a country I used to love, who as a child wept when the brisk police band bugled, hats off, the flag is passing by. Now that every wanton deed in this stack of newsprint is heartbreak, my blackened fingers can only root in dirt, turning up industrious earthworms, bits of unreclaimed eggshell, wanting to ask the earth to take my unquiet spirit, bury it deep, make compost of it. Mm. So there she is in the garden using newspaper and to I mulch. And I compost, too. <laughs> and you compost, too. But And you told me that when you read that poem, it introduced you to a new idea for for mulching your garden, right? I mean, you. Well, oh, yes, that idea of putting newspapers between rows. Mm-hmm. I fascinated me. <laughs> yeah. But how cool that she was there digging in the earth and, and seeing all these headlines oh, and yes, terrible yes, stories. Yes. And, and uh, to yeah. pull that into the poem yeah. is really lovely. <laughs> so that was mulching. So what, have you, what do you have next? Well, six weeks after. Two roistering dogs splayed me flat on frozen turf, shattering six ribs, consigning me to gray walls, bleak thoughts. I'm up and about, hitching from place to place, and I see the common coarse-grained stones have not given up their good seats in the wall, though the deckled-edged daffodils came and went 
while I mortared my rented bed up and down, and I see the greening margin along the road is shaggy and unshorn, and the goldfinches have exchanged their winter costumes for strobic lozenges of yellow that brighten the window feeder, and an indigo bunting has brought his electric blue to my sphere, so that each time the rose-breasted grosbeak alights for a sunflower ship, I am stunned into wholeness, healed by a wheel of primary colors. <laughs> what was it about that poem that uh, caught your eye? What, why did you like it? Well, the healing of color, I guess. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> and, and it all coming together. Yeah. 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 So she had a fall. Yes. And, and she was still uh, on her rented bed, she said. Yes. Uh, Interesting. When? Did, how did you first discover her poetry? Do you remember when you first found Maxine Cumin? Well, I'm a person who doesn't really search out poetry. I bump into it. Okay. And nice. I, and I, I bumped into Auden's Christmas Story years ago. Mm-hmm. I bumped in. I just and E. E. Cummings, you know. But yeah. it's discovering it someplace else. I see. And then finding the ones that I like, and I read them over and over again. Very nice. Yeah. Okay. Um, what else have you bumped into? <laughs> Let's hear the next one. Um, this is called "Though He Tarry." Okay. I believe with perfect faith in the coming of the Messiah, and though he tarry, I will wait daily for his coming, said Maimonides in 1190 or so, and 44% of people polled in the USA in 2007 are also waiting for him to show up in person, though, of course, he won't be a person. Do we want to save our planet, the only one we know of? So the faithful 44% can be in a state of high alert in case he arrives in person, though, of course, he won't be a person. According to Stephen J. Cold, the science and religion are non-overlapping magisteria. See each elbowing the other to shove over on the bed they're condemned to share. See how they despise shrink back from accidental touching. It's no surprise that 60% of scientists say they are non-believers. But whether you're churchy or not, what about the planet? Damn all of you with dumpsters. Damn all of you who do not compost. Damn all who tie their dogs out on bare ground without water. Damn all who de-beat chickens and all who eat them. Damn CEOs with bonuses, corporate chets, trophy wives. Damn venal human nature lurching our way to a sorry and probably fiery finale. If only he'd strap his angel wings on in the ether and get his license and guaranteed ass down here. Though, of course, he won't be a person. If only he wouldn't tarry. (laughs) If only he'd strap his wings on. (laughs) I love it. Um, I think those are the first three. Those were from, those were the first three. That yeah. was your the section you said was, was um, um, garden gardening and world events. Gardening and world events. Yeah, I like that. Um, and and the second mix. the second one is history and culture. 
Okay. All right. Um, we can. Uh, well, let me ask you a question before we move to, right. the, to the second batch. Right. Um, so you said that you kind of bump, have bumped into poetry yes. over time, and but you seem to you read it quite a bit. I mean, often when we're in meetings um, at church or wherever, you you often bring poems. Well, I did when I was Christian Service Board <laughs> leader. I, I I led with a poem frequently. Yes, you did. No, but um, why do you do that? Do you think what what is it about poetry that makes you do that? Well, well, as I say, when I find one I like, I I keep at it. Yeah, I, I repeat it. Um, I I I can't. Okay. I don't know if I can answer that question okay. right now. That's all right. Uh, because it, uh, as I say, oh well, I would. This might be interesting for the library. Let's hear it. In a something I was reading was the uh, piece from W. H. Auden's The Christmas Story, mm-hmm. which and which is dedicated to his mother, and everybody in it has a a, a, a speech, including the star. And Herod is only in, is in prose, but everybody else in the three wise men are wonderful. So I used to, uh, for several advents, I used to come down. This was during card catalog days, okay, yeah. <laughs> many day. many years ago. Yeah, and I would come down every advent to mm-hmm. read that poem. Well, I came down one year, and of course I remember the row where it went, mm-hmm. where it was. Well, I came down to my row, and it wasn't there one Uh-oh. year. Oh. And there were a lot of new books that were there. <laughs> and so go, instead of going to the card catalog, I noticed there was a, a Nobel Prize winner, Milos, oh. on the wall. On, mm-hmm. And I said, well, I'll try him. And there was another one. I'll try him. Okay. So I took those home. Uh, Milos, there was a lot I didn't understand, but the ones I liked, I liked very, very much. Nice. And, of course, I think he's known for writing The Captive Mind, mm. even before he, people know he's a poet. Yeah, and so and he and I have his battery, his his biography, yeah. and uh, so uh, I get and I have E. E. Cummings' mm. biography too. Nice, but again, it's it's bumping into certain things and liking certain. Yeah, well, it's nice that you allow yourself to explore. It sounds like to me, like yeah, you see yeah. something and you're like, I'm going to try that. Yeah, and then you find what you like about it. Yeah, uh-huh. which is um, a good model to follow. Oh, okay. I think. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Even though I go back and read them, read them again. Yes, right. of course. Why okay. not? You're listening to Poetry on Air. Mm-hmm. I'm Lisa Vihos, and my guest today is Janet Ross. And together we are exploring the poetry of Maxine Kuhlman. And um, Janet's going to share some more. What did? What's your next poem up on... For us, well, we are, we're th- I'm thinking in terms of history and culture now. Okay, and so the name of this one is "During the Assassinations." I took the cello to its lesson, the cheerleader to the gym. I was a sixty soccer mom, and when the bassoon needed double reeds to suck on, I scoured Boston. I bought red knee highs for the cheerleader. Skirts wide enough to straddle the cello on stage. Cacophony of warm-up, then the oboe's A, every good boy does fine. Football games with fake pom-poms, sis boom and after, gropings under the grandstands. 
I went where I was called to go. I clapped. I comforted. I kept my eyes on Huntley and Brinkley. During the assassinations, I marched with other soccer moms. I carried lemons in case of tear gas. I have a dream became my dream. I stood all night on the steps of the Pentagon. With each new death, I added my grief to the brief of millions. But always, her pink suit on that flat trunk of the limousine, and in her hand, a piece of his skull. Oh, man. <laughs> it did it to me again. You, the, when you read that to me the other day, I told you it just, the pink, her pink suit, yes. that detail. And I mean, I was, was it 1963 when he was assassinated? Well, do we know? It, it, I'm, it, it, I was like three or four years old. I was so uh, little, but I can see the picture. In my and head. of course, later on, uh, Martin Luther King, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. No, it's it's such a powerful poem. I mean, here you are, soccer moms, and yeah, you yes. know, running around getting stuff for the cello, and and then suddenly, well, and it's, it expresses the shock of everyone. I yes, think. that terrible yeah. shock, sort of from uh, the mundane uh, to yes, this. Yes. Oh my goodness, so powerful. Thank you for sharing that one. So are we ready for another one? Yes, let's hear another one. This is called National Velvet. I think many people will respond to that title. Yes. (laughs) When the Vatican charged Elizabeth Taylor with erotic vagrancy in 1962 for sleeping with Richard Burton while still married to I forget who, there were so many, all I would think of was her soaring over fences on the pie her first love, a piebald horse with one blue eye who'd leapt a, leapt a five-foot stone wall to get into another pasture. And one thing led to another in the book by Enig Bagno, and Liz rose to stardom in Hollywood at age 12. Pieballs have large patches, usually black on white, sometimes the other way around, which are not desirable on a thoroughbred, especially one with eyes that do not match, two traits suggesting some erotic vagrancy. A hybrid rogue slipped generations back into the registry. Liz married seven men, Burton twice, by which time he was losing his hair and she was growing a double chin. But let us remember how fiercely she flew over fences on the wild piebald horse with one brown eye and one that was blue. Love <laughs> it's it. Funny. That's so good. <laughs> That's so good. You you inspired me, Janet, because I told you when you first told me you wanted to read her poetry that I had a particular favorite poem by her. Can oh, I share that one before by, you do your last one? Yeah, by Maxine Kuhn. Oh, good. Yes, yes, please. Um, it's from a book called Our Ground Time Here Will Be Brief. Yes. And it's actually the title poem, Uh Um, and I just, I'll read it quickly, and then we'll continue with what you brought. So this one is called, Our Ground Time Here Will Be Brief. Blue landing lights make nail holds in the dark. Mm -hmm. A fine snow falls. We sit on the tarmac, taking on the mail, quick freight, trays of laboratory mice, coffee and Danish for the passengers. Wherever we're going is Monday morning. 
Wherever we're coming from is mother's lap. On the cloud pack above, strewn as loosely as parsnip or celery seeds, lie the souls of the unborn, my children's children's children and their father. We gather speed for the last run and lift off into the weather. I just love that line, Mm -hmm. wherever we're coming from is mother's lap. (laughs) And the holes with... The light yes, coming. the light coming you know, <laughs> yes, in the dark, dark and you see yeah. these little holes yeah. <laughs> of light. But there's something about it that all this there's something strewn in the in the in the cloud pack, mm-hmm. parsnip seeds. I mean mm-hmm. she definitely has a, a gardening theme, I think, through some of her poetry, doesn't she? She she you told me she lives on a farm, right? In uh, northern New York and yeah. had lots of horses. She has poems about her horses. In fact, one of there's one that talk. She's really talking about dying, death. Yeah. She's talking about the horses about to die, but she and her husband are also at getting that age too. Oh. And you notice that books I have of hers are her are from her later life. The books you own are her for young, her young life. So yeah. you were drawn to the the these, age the part because I'm an aging person. Too. Well, I think I am too. <laughs> But I, you have 30 years on me, so <laughs> you get to have more aging. Um, no, that's so interesting. So that that about her poetry spoke to you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's interesting. I was curious about what you had done with um, for partner in reading. Tell us a little bit about that when you were involved with that. Well, uh, Jack Lewis, who founded the uh, reading program, for years ago, mm-hmm. and after five years of getting it settled, and I, I, I also have read students with read students through that program. Mm-hmm. But he made a moment for a mission one Sunday morning, saying that he wanted to start a read this partnered reading in school, because many of the people who land in prison are there because they never really learned to read. Okay, and I thought to myself, that's for me. <laughs> and I, help I yes, and that. I like reading. <laughs> yeah, and you did that for quite a long time. Oh yes, yes, and that was through the school district. Yes. Okay. And then when my daughter-in-law got a job at Grant School, I told her about the program, and she said, "I want a lot of those." Uh, <laughs> nice. She, and she and so and she got me and Jill. Yeah. Uh huh. Yeah. Jill Reckfordy. Yes. Okay. Yeah. So you would go to her class, and, and they would... and they gave me uh, students. They felt. They they but they were second and third grades teachers. Okay. They they had saw teach students who really extra needed extra help. Okay. They might not get just a regular class. Yeah. And uh, what would you do with them? Well, then he not only provide got the material for wonderful to help te- uh, teachers to do it. So we talked about first. Uh, uh, Small vowels as well as big now, mm-hmm. and, and there was a certain amount of bo- in a book to help the teacher, okay. and then uh, and then after that they were encouraged to read, and as I say, Frog and Toad, oh, everybody's frog and favorite. Toad. Yes, <laughs> sure. And then I read to them too. I okay. might read part of a story to them, which would continue from week to week. You oh, know? nice. Yes, and I loved doing that. I bet. Yeah. And I'm sure you helped a lot of people stay out of jail. (laughs) (laughs) I bet you did. I bet you did. What about your your many years of being a docent at the Art Center? 
What was that like? Well, um, in a nutshell. In a nutshell, <laughs> I will. Well, that's when I broke my hip at the toward the end yes, of the forty years uh, of doing re, it. Re, I mentioned that because in the olden days, when you had an adult tour, and most of the tours were school children. Yes. In the olden days, if you had an uh, adult tour, they always had this, I'm going to be educated attitude. <laughs> they didn't want to hear. Yeah, I mean, it, 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 the whole thing was so new to them. And yeah. they, and that went, but things improved over the years. Okay. And I always feel that if I had to fall and break my hip, that I landed uh, on a high mark because I had done a tour of adults, uh-huh. adults, women who were full of conversation and asking questions. Oh, nice. It was so much fun. It was a great <laughs> yes. ending tour. Yes, it was a great ending. Engaged viewers. <laughs> Yay. <laughs> Very nice. Yeah. Well, I bet you... You saw a lot of different kinds of art. I mean, there was over 40 years. I mean, oh, yes. you probably toured hundreds of students and hundreds of adults. And We were kind of ahead of the game of glass art. Uh-huh. Harvey Littleton was a big name in, in Madison. Mm-hmm. And we had a show that in the large gallery, half something like Harvey Littleton and half kind of antique, or oh. old, which they probably acquired from around the community. Yeah. And I remember there was one glass platter, mm-hmm. very ornate in the antique part, very ornate, mm-hmm. and, but there was a tiny nude. Uh-oh. In it, and I got a lot of comments from small boys, <laughs> and they, it was very small. And but they found they it. Saw it. They found it. Oh my goodness! Well, I'm sure. Then in later years, there were times when there were nudes in the gallery, weren't there? Like things oh, we yes, had to, later, things later, we had to be this careful was very about. Early, that very, was very way, early in our history. Very yeah, early. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> well, I'm sure you handled it with your usual flair and. Turned it around to let's look at something over here. <laughs> so I, ha- I think we have the one more. You have yes. one more, yeah. Yes. So I. What's it called? The immutable laws. Never by land on a slope, my father declared the week before his heart gave out. We bit down hard on a derelict dairy farm, of tilting hills. Fields, humps, and granite outcrops. Never bet what you can't afford to lose, he lectured. I bet my soul on a tortured horse who never learned to love but came to trust me. Spend your money close to where you earn it, he dictated. Nothing made him crosser than wives who drove to New York to go shopping when Philly stores had everything they needed. This grab bag of immutable laws, circa 1940, when I was the last child left at home to be admonished. Only borrow what you know you can repay. Your mother used to run up dress shop bills the size of the Fifth Liberty Loan, his private hyperbole. It took me years to understand there had been five loans financed launched to finance the First World War, the one he fought in, the war to end all wars. What would this man who owed no man, who kept his dollars folded in a rubber band, have thought of credit cards, banking online, wars later, 
clear as water. I hear him say, reconcile your checkbook monthly, and oh, always carry a clean handkerchief. <laughs> ah, the olden the olden days. Yes. We were talking about that a little bit ago, you and I. About... Well, yeah, I think there's a, I don't know whether, I, I think I asked you before, aren't there fathers or grandfathers like that today? I think so. Yeah. Still. I, I, there are elements of my my own father. He came from New England. Mm-hmm. He was a New England. In this, I think that's, but. Uh, <laughs> I think people sort of in, in their 80s, mm-hmm. you know. Balancing your checkbook, that's yeah. just something oh, yeah. you did. Yes. We don't oh, do yeah. that too much anymore. No. We just go check it on our phone. It, yes, How's yeah, my balance? Yes. What am, how am I doing? And I especially like the uh, uh, having to go to New York to get a dress when Philly had absolutely <laughs> <everything>. <laughs> That's great. Well, it's been great having you with us today, Janet. Thank, Thank you, you for, for coming to Poetry on Air. And thank you, listener, for joining us. If you have an idea for the show, please reach out to me at poetlaureatesheboygan at gmail.com and join us again next time for Poetry on Air. You have been listening to Poetry on Air, hosted by Sheboygan's Poet Laureate, Lisa Vihos. Questions or comments can be directed to Lisa at poetlaureatesheboygan at gmail.com. Poetry on Air is produced in the studios at Reed Public Library in Sheboygan, Wisconsin. More information on the web at meadpl.org.